Again, good morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, normally we'll, we would be singing our prayer of illumination here, but we're going to be reading the scripture actually a little bit later. Uh, we've been studying, if you're just joining us as a visitor, welcome. Uh, we've been studying uh, the letter to the Galatians, which is uh, the Apostle Paul, who is an official representative of Jesus, an authoritative, authoritative representative of Jesus, wrote these letters to the churches to help them live out the Jesus story, and we've been going through the Galatians one, and in that Galatians letter, it talks a lot about being united or one in Jesus Christ, one in our faith, uh, and so it's a huge theme, and it can kind of be a little bit um, surface level at times, or I could put a sharper point on it, in Galatians 3, 25, he says, Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Christ. And the church goes, Amen. And then subtly we go, Really? Really? Are we all really one in Christ? Are we truly United spiritually, yes, actually we are, but like practically, you know, it's, it's easy to, you know, hey, greeting time, which I love the greeting time, you know, whatever, it's great, but to go deeper than that, you know, the practitioners, the people that are deeply invested in the church and they've been around for a while, it's like, yeah, it's pretty easy to actually experience disunity in the church and you could certainly look at church history and find many examples where the church has not lived out that reality. And so what we want to do for the next couple of weeks is we're actually going to pause a little bit in Galatians and we're going to move over to Romans 14 and 15, which is the longest uh, section of Scripture dealing with the topic of how Christians are supposed to get along, even though they have differences. And so, for example, you know, when it says there's no Jew or Greek, well, if they were reading or they were listening to that letter the Jewish folks were still like, well, I'm still Jewish. <laughs> and the men were still men, and the women were still women, and, you know, it's not like all the slaves got emancipated. You know, so there's like, there's like, hey, how do we actually do it? You know, shoe leather on. And so Galatians certainly addresses it, but uh, Romans 14 and 15 does it a little bit more in depth, and so that's where we're going to go. Now, just by way of continuing in, by uh, introduction, you know, the issues aren't just, I mean, those issues still exist, you know, racism, classism, sexism, that still exists, of course, in the church and outside of the church. So those are issues that we would need to work through. But there's, uh, there's more issues on top of that. You know, we could start talking about theological issues. And so how Christians would disagree on things like baptism or the, when Jesus is going to return or the sovereignty of God. Is it general or is it specific? And you could, you know, add a number of Christian teachings to that. On top of, like, theological issues, there's, like, practical method issues, methodological issues, like, how should, Christianity's, uh, how should Christians work out their faith, and, you know, what's worldly or what's not, what shows should I watch, or what shouldn't I watch, or what should we expose our children to, how should we educate them, and what about dress, and how do we handle our money, and all those things, and Christians can disagree on all that stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. And then even uh, hotter button issues would be, like, how do we address political issues? Republican, Democrat, independent, issues on abortion and you know, race and uh, sex and gender and all of those things. 
And so there's a lot of issues. Everyone say issues. <laughs> there you go. And so how are we actually going to live united is a big, big question. And if you're here and you're new to the Christian faith, the whole Jesus movement, then you know maybe you've heard about some of the division that exists in the church and you're maybe a little bit nervous about that. And, you know, fair enough. And if you've been in and around the church for a long time, maybe you just settled in like, well, well we just kind of give up. Well, we're never ultimately going to be divided, any, or we're never really going to be united until Jesus comes back, so it doesn't matter. I can't do that either. And so here at New City, there's lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds, lots of different experiences, and lots of different views. How are we going to actually live united? And so to kind of uh, show the importance of this, uh, here, but just by the way of roadmap, just to, so you know where I'm going to finish up, we're going to do. I'm going to show you why this is important. Okay, going to spend a fair bit of time on that. Then I'm going to read this section in its entirety because I think it's that important for us to to hear attentively. And then I'm going to show you the principles that are in there to finish up. So that's where we're going. That's how we're going to finish up. Let me show you why this issue of unity is so important, and it's going to be a little bit of a survey through the New Testament. So again, one of my roles and privileges is to spend time studying the Word, <clears throat> excuse me, and I feel like kind of like a tour guide here to kind of take you up to a higher vantage point so that you can kind of get the lay of the land. How important does the New Testament actually think that Christians living together in unity is? How important is it? And so we're going to look at that here over the next few minutes. A couple things. Let's start with Jesus. In John chapter 17, this is his, what's called his high priestly prayer, and it's the, like the last prayer, it's the longest prayer that we have of Jesus, and it's right before he dies. Listen to how he prays. This is Jesus speaking to his father. I don't ask for these only. These would have been the people in the room with Jesus while he's praying, his immediate disciples, apostles. I'm praying for them, but not just them, I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's us, New City. We believe the word of the, the apostles of Jesus, and that's why you're here. Well, in theory, okay? So Jesus is praying for us as well, and he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. So it's a deep kind of unity that Jesus wants his followers to experience with each other. We share the same spirit of Jesus with him, and we all share that same spirit of Jesus together. It's powerful. And then he says, so that the world, those who are outside of the church, people who don't know Jesus yet, will believe that you have sent me. So you see what's on the line here is Jesus' credibility. Jesus came saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm God's chosen king, I'm the savior of the world and the king of all kings. That's the Father sent me for that task, and if we live united, we bear witness to that. If we live divided, then they won't believe our Jesus and who he is and what he did. Whew. That's very important. So the apostles took that seriously. And I'm going to read you probably, I don't know, six or eight texts here of early apostles, followers of Jesus, who took that prayer seriously. Look how Paul says this in Romans. We're going to read this 
a little bit later as well, but may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord or being formed by, in Christ Jesus, the word, the word Christ is a title, King Jesus. I want you to live in harmony, in conformity to King Jesus, that together you may with one voice, this is Jews and Gentiles, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The distinction and the division, the animosity, prejudice between Jew and Gentile was very sharp, akin to what we experience in our day. And Paul's saying, I want you to, now that you've come together under King Jesus' banner, to glorify him with one voice. So it's Jesus, it's Romans, 1 Corinthians. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. <laughs> In heaven, I want to meet Chloe's people. <laughs> that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I like this leader, and so I'm, I'm team Paul. I'm team Apollos, and team Paul and team Apollos quarrel. <clears throat> I follow Cephas or Peter. I follow Christ, the real spiritual people in the church. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he spends the first four chapters of that letter discussing their disunity and how they're acting like children. Babies, he says, basically. Galatians, I already read that this morning, the, one of the primary themes of Galatians. So again, just think now. Again, if, if you're just coming in and you're new, I don't want this to overwhelm you, but the, there's 27 you know, books in the New Testament, there's 13 letters, and it's like Jesus and letter after letter after letter after letter, unity, 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 unity. So what I think, I, I'm afraid that some of us think that unity in the church is like maybe a nice byproduct, I hope it's there or not, as opposed to like this huge pillar of the church that we all should be concerned about dramatically. Next, Ephesians, I therefore, Paul's a prisoner at this time writing this letter, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You've been called into the kingdom of Jesus, so live accordingly. How do you do that? With humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's another church. He's calling them to live worthy of the kingdom, what it means to be a Christian, live united there is one body one spirit you are called in one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all through all and in all right you, you think he's concerned <laughs> philippians and most scholars will tell you not all letters have like a very clear obvious theme verse like but this is a lot of scholars would agree that this is probably the theme verse of philippians only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, the good news of the King, of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Is that idea of the kind of like Roman military, shields locked together, moving forward together, unified. Colossians, don't lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self. You've, in its practices, you put on the new self, which is being renewed. 
after the image of its creator. So he appeals to like, hey, when you became a Christian, your old life went away, and now you're living this new life. And in this new life that you have, it's not about being Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Very similar to the Galatians one. Philemon. Philemon's really cool. He, you know, hardly anyone knows what's going on in this book. It's literally one page in your Bible. That's your homework assignment. Just read Philemon. It'll take you two minutes. And then you'll have 50 questions, so it'll take you a long time. No. Philemon was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a guy named Philemon who had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from Philemon before he was a Christian. And Onesimus ran into Paul. And he heard the story of Jesus, that you can be forgiven for your sins, and that Jesus is the Christ who died and rose again. And Onesimus became, Onesimus became a believer, and Paul heard his backstory. He's like, well, yeah, you ran away from this guy Philemon. Oh, I know Philemon. i got to send you back. And now you've got a slave and a free man in the church trying to work it out. So what does Paul say to Philemon? For this is perhaps why he parted from you for a while. I think that's hilarious. That is like the most PR way of saying a slave ran away I've ever heard. <laughs> he was parted from you for a while. Why? That you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, <clears throat> as a beloved brother. Now, there's boots on the ground how these guys are actually getting along. The Apostle Paul is saying, graciously, but authoritatively, to Philemon, you treat this guy like your brother in Christ, not as a returned runaway slave. Next, James, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Not based on wealth, not based on heritage, not based on gender. First Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, say above all. So you're reading this letter or you're hearing it be read to you, and if you're like me, you're just like, okay, yeah, is he going to get to the main point here? <laughs> and Peter's like, above all, here's the big deal. Keep loving one another earnestly. And so again, that doesn't use the word unity there, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's right there. In, it's implied in that concept of love. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I love that he says that expression. There's many expressions of love, but that's certainly a prominent one. Like church hurt is real. Okay, you've been in church, you've definitely been hurt, unless you just haven't been there long enough. But... The kingdom of God is also real. Forgiveness is also real. We just sang it. The Lord says, forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. <laughs> letter after letter after letter. Paul, James, Peter, Jesus. 1 John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he gets very practical at the end. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Put the shoe leather on, he's saying. This was my desire to, to move a little bit out of Galatians for a little while because I want us to actually dig in and learn to love each other and be united across the differences. And finally, Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and people's languages, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is the united, gathered people of God. Everyone that is in Christ, there finally, that's an image, it's a vision of the final scene where we're standing before the throne, all united together, and we are crying out with a loud voice one song, singing one song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, I understand that was a number of minutes working through potentially maybe some familiar passages together. For some of you, might be new for others, but why do I do that? I do that to press home the importance of this issue. We cannot faithfully name the name of Jesus and be secondary or third or fourth on our list of, hey, what's important at New City? Unity in Christ is right at the top. All over the New Testament from the very words of Jesus himself. And so there's a very, you know, the very credibility of Jesus is at stake. So it's super important. It's also important, I would say, for one other reason. This is much shorter, not working through as many texts for sure. It's important for an experiential reason, both inside and outside the church. I think inside the church, it's tremendously encouraging to think, as I was going through this, like, oh, Jesus is encouraging and telling my brothers and sisters to care about me. Isn't that cool? When you belong to the church and you come in and you feel alone and you feel heard and, you, and you, maybe all these things you can feel, there is the voice of Jesus and his spirit in his people saying, move toward them. People are going to move toward me. Okay? And it's so encouraging. And it's also, it's also a, a, we live in a, I wouldn't say a unique moment, but we live in a moment where we know there's a lot of division in our culture around us. And so this presents the church as an opportunity to show the world a different way. There's a different way to be human. You can have differences of background and heritage, but the value and the worth and the power of King Jesus can bring human beings together across race and class and gender and all of these things. We have a moment here to be a city on a hill so that people who are looking for belonging, who are fed up with the division, can come in and find a, a true and deep unity despite human difference. And so I think those are really good reasons for us to be concerned about unity in the church. Now, if you would, what I want to transition to now, having said all of that, why it's important, why we're addressing it, uh, would you stand with me, please? I want to read Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13. If that's difficult for you, it's going to be about 30 verses, so feel free to stay seated if you're not able. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So Paul immediately introduces, there's a category of opinions, and then there's like not opinions, like first rank stuff and second rank stuff. Welcome your brother who has different second rank opinions than you. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Again, just briefly, there were Jews who refrained from eating certain things, and there were Gentiles who ate all the things. And Paul's saying, hey, God has welcomed both of you, so welcome each other. This is a Jew-Gentile food particular 
issue. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he, the person who you're disdaining, will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Or as Christians, we're not living for ourselves. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, or the actual Greek word is judge this, never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of your brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is un unclean, speaking of foods, in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep your, between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches... Of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. In order that, so he was faithful to Jews, so that he might include the Gentiles. Listen to all the stuff he says about the nations. I'll, I'll substitute nations for Gentiles each time. As it is written, I will praise you among the nations. I will sing to your name. Again it is said, rejoice, O nations, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you nations, and let the peoples extol him. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, the Jewish king, he who arises to rule the nations, and in him the nations will hope. So Jews and Gentiles all gathered under King Jesus. 
And finally, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So that's obviously a lot to take in. Let me just, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're just going to summarize those thoughts for this week that's going to set the table for the two weeks following to come. So what are the principles that we glean about how we work out this issue of Christian unity? Number one, don't be critical of your brother because God has welcomed him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? That Christian over there is not my servant, he's Jesus' servant. <laughs> you don't come into my house and judge my servant. I will take care of that. Don't discipline my kids. Got it. Got, see what I'm saying? The Lord, this is interesting, the Lord's going to make that brother stand on the final day. So check yourself. Now it's interesting here, as I said in the, when I started reading it, these are second-rank issues. These are issues of opinions. You know, if a Christian wants to not eat meat as unto the Lord, he's free to do so. We'll see that in a second. If someone wants to eat, he's free to do so. You don't even necessarily have to change their mind. Just welcome him as the Lord has welcomed you. And there's two attitudes going on here that are very prevalent that can happen inside the church and outside the church, honestly. But the people who are more conservative, let's talk about conservatives and liberals. Let's really get into it. The conservatives here were the Jewish folks who were not eating. And they think they're better than the liberals who are eating. So the Bible says, they, the word Paul uses is they're judging them. We're better than you. You're second class citizens of the kingdom. And then the liberals... Gentiles who were eating and not requiring the Sabbath and all that stuff, they were, quote-unquote, more free. They, the, word, the Greek word there is despised. Oh, those poor Jews, God bless them. They just think they need to eat that. As long as they stay there, they're fine. Don't bother me, don't too dare you know, criticize my freedom. Both, it's just two different ways of being arrogant. Dismissive, condescending. That's what's happening in the church. It's dividing the church. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesus as the king has welcomed both. Number two, he says, interestingly, be convinced in your own heart and mind of your position. I want to challenge you to think through. You know, there's lots of, you know, I mentioned theological positions, methodological positions, all these different positions that can be out there. <laughs> the Bible's actually saying here, hey, like, have an opinion. Think it through. Don't just be like, oh, whatever, you know. Like, engage. Think, learn, grow. <laughs> the fact, though, that he does call one group weak <laughs> and one group strong, you know, is instructive. If I was the Jewish folk in there and I heard this thing read, I'd be going home saying, babe, I think we got to talk about some stuff. <laughs> I think I need to figure something out here. And so, yes, like, engage the issue, have an opinion, but be open-minded to growing and to changing. It's essential for Christian unity. Three, the Lord receives each view as an acceptable form of worship. 
And he ties this to that, it sounds maybe a little bit confusing, that section about Jesus dying and rising again. He's basically arguing Jesus died and rose again to be Lord of the entire church, not just part of it. And so everything we do is for the Lord. And so follow the logic. The, the, or the, the Gentile people were saying, I'm not eating because Christ has set us free from the law. And Jesus says, yep, I'm pleased with that line of thinking and that line of behavior. And then the Jews were saying, well, I'm concerned about falling into paganism. That was still an issue of the day. And so I'm going to refrain from that, and I'm going to hang on to the Jewish dietary laws. And Jesus goes, yep, that's okay too. I receive it. That's incredible. And so this principle is going to be very important so that when you look at the person over there who has a different view and they're practicing something different than you are, you can still say, well, the Lord receives that. They're still doing it for the Lord, and I can still be united, even though we don't agree on that particular issue. Four. Jesus will hold each of us individually accountable. <laughs> this is great, too. So, in my house, three daughters, and you try to parent them. And they're experts at what I said and how I treated their siblings. And, well, they did this, so I can do that. It's incredible. I never even taught them to think like that, and they just do it. So if one is perceived to be getting away with something that someone else did not get away with, there is division and angst in our household. However, the unity is restored when authority is displayed. Oh, Dad took care of that. Okay, fine, I'll close my mouth. No big deal. <laughs> and everyone gets along again. Know this. On second and third rank issues in the church, they are second and third rank. They're not ultimate, but Jesus will hold you accountable. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on. He knows why you're eating or not, why you're not eating. And as we address these other issues... You know, this Christian, you know, they seem more liberal around this, so they're too legalistic on this. You aren't the judge. Jesus will judge them for that. I will give an account for how I handle these, and so will they, so I can just love you now, and you can love me now. Isn't that, I mean, maybe I didn't explain it well enough, but that's going to make you really happy. <laughs> and it's going to make this church filled with peace and joy because we don't have to be each other's judge now. Jesus will hold each of us accountable so I can love him. Five, walk in love. There's lots of things here. We'll spend more time on these, obviously. Christ died for this brother. Wow, what a motive. I'm going to destroy the kingdom of God, he says here. I'm going to spoil a relationship with a brother or sister for whom Christ suffered and died because of my issue on whether or not I want to eat that meat. He says, number four there, under, under, number four, under point five, pursue edification even when it means limiting your freedom, especially when you limit your freedom. Jesus limited his freedom to bring the church together as one. So if I'm seeking to follow Jesus, how can I lay down my freedoms and my rights so that I might be a blessing and pursue peace with my brethren? Number six, my favorite. <laughs> Keep some of the views to yourself. Just don't talk about it. You've got this like crazy weird view on like, you know, 
oh man, I, I, I'm like rifling through like four or five things in my mind. I'm like, well, if I say that, that's going to go. Blah, blah. So I'm just going to say one, climate control. <laughs> All right? So I don't know who I just offended, but <laughs> it's not a first-rank issue. You don't have to post on it on social media regularly. In fact, there's a new rule at New City. You can only post first-rank issues on social media. No, excuse me. <laughs> We'd be happier. <laughs> Keep some of that stuff to yourself. And that is an acknowledgement that we live in a fallen world. Okay? Yes, we're not going to be able to go all the way deep and agree with everybody, every single person in, in all the churches on every single issue. It's not going to happen. And so just keep some stuff to yourself. Seven, don't go against your conscience. This is a really interesting point. It allows for us to recognize that we're all in a process. So Paul legitimately, he says two times in the passage, it's okay to eat the meat. And if you were a Jewish person, you would go home from church that day thinking, it's okay to eat the meat. And so you say to your wife, okay, go to the marketplace, get the meat, and you bring it back, and you prepare, and, and, and they're just like, we can't do it. I just can't, I just feel, my chest is tightening, I just can't do it. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. You can inform your conscience, and your conscience can grow and be more aligned with the will of God, sure. But we're all in process. God has given your conscience as a gift. It's a tender instrument. Don't abuse it. Which also means that other people are dealing with their consciences in this church, and so don't be brash. Don't be impatient. Issues of conscience are important. Don't go against them. In fact, it would actually, Paul says, to be a sin, even though you... Eating is not a sin, but if it's against your conscience, it becomes a sin for you. And I mean, what a crazy principle. It can be sin for one person and not for another. Wow. We've got to think through issues of unity. You've got to, you see why this, you've got to work. It's not like, hey, we're all one in Christ. Da, 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 da. No, work. <laughs> and eight, the strong are to bear with the weak. I love the, ver- the, the verb that Paul used there in chapter 15 and verse 1 is this is what you owe. If you're stronger on a particular issue than someone else, meaning their conscience is weaker and your conscience is more aligned with the, the, the word of God, the conformity with King Jesus there, then you owe it to them to bear with them and limit your rights and freedoms as they come along. You owe it to them. I think in church sometimes we don't think we owe anybody anything. You know, we owe Jesus everything. We owe our brothers and sisters to bear with one another. And then there's this great promise at the end that God is a God of endurance. So if the strong is like, man, I'm, I'm laying down my freedoms and it, I need strength for that, God is the God of endurance. He'll give you strength for that. And if you're weak, God is a God of encouragement. He'll encourage you out of that weakness. Amen? So these are the principles we're going to explore over the next two weeks more in depth and how to work them out. And we're going to bring issues in, examples of how we can, you know, these things can get played out. Now let me just finish with a couple points of application and we'll be out of here. Let me give you the main point of all that. It's, you know, if you're like me, you're like, all right, well, what is the actual, what are you saying here, Mike? What is the main point? Well, chapter 15 and verse 5 is the main point. 5, 6, and 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in conformity or in accordance with King Jesus, that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. People who would fancy themselves a bit more conservative, people who would fancy themselves a bit more liberal, politically, uh, gender issues, race issues, class issues, economic issues, theological issues, against all of those, and again, we'll carefully look at what are first and second rank issues, but across all of those second and third rank issues will be unified under the first rank issue of allegiance to King Jesus, and with one voice will glorify God, and the world will know that Jesus is King, and they'll see a picture of a new way to be human. That's the main point. That with one voice, we glorify God together. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, all those things. And across all of our differences as well. The second thing I want to say, if that's the main point, don't miss the driving theme, the motivator and the shaper of this unity is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Disunity in the church is the result that you have not taken the death of Jesus serious enough. <laughs> Pastor Dave was like, yeah, we sing about it a lot. Yeah, we sing about it. We take it serious. Well, not, not yet. Did you hear how he argued? Not even Christ pleased himself, so bear with the weak. Don't offend your brother for whom Christ died. Three different times, Christ has welcomed him. What's drive, I, so what, I want to ask you, what's driving and shaping your life? Is it the death and resurrection and return of King Jesus, or is it a second-rank issue? So let the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus drive and shape. That's exactly how Paul argues again and again. Each point is basically sprinkled with some form or another of that gospel truth. And then finally... How do you actually do it? And Dave said it in the communion thing. Jesus said that the work of God is to believe. The last verse in, that we read, verse chapter 15 and verse 13, says that you'll be filled with joy and peace, a.k.a. unity, by believing. And so the encouragement, the pastoral encouragement for you on this, these issues is believe into more deeply, more strongly, more practically. I can't think that. I can't say that. Jesus died for them. Does that ever occur to you? I can't think that. I can't feel that. I can't say that. I'm supposed to bear with them the same way Jesus is born with me. Jesus has welcomed me. I can't believe he's welcomed me. I want to welcome this person. That's what needs to happen again and again and again so that we may with one voice glorify God. Father, I pray for strength and wisdom from your spirit to actually live this out. Give us the desire and the wisdom to be able to walk in love. In Jesus' name, amen.